a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership. And the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome to the show. I hope you are geared up and ready to go with some serious wrong thinking this hour. Because I am too. And I'm looking forward to it. So I know there's a lot of decisions that we all have to make on a day-to-day basis. And one of the big ones that uh, I know my family has not been the only one struggling with is, uh, do we comply with all of the uh, admonitions of it's time to forego Thanksgiving, except for everybody who's, you know, from your immediate household? And I, I have a real problem with this, as you might have guessed, right? Big surprise. <laughs> of course, you're going to have a problem with this. Uh, that's, what, that's what makes you who you are. But um, here's the thing. My mom is 85 years old. And that means that uh, I'm trying to think of a delicate way to say this, but I'm just going to come out and say it. At 85 years of age, it is very plain and very observable to me that she is slowing down. Now, that doesn't mean that, you know, we're just hanging on every minute thinking, man, is she going to be with us? Is, is this it for her? Um, I, I saw the same thing with my grandparents roughly 25 years ago when they reached their mid 80s. It was like someone threw a switch and you could see the the, the decline in their health and their uh, their frailty increasing very, very quickly. And this is part of life, okay? So I'm, I'm not angling for any kind of sympathy or anything. Uh, but uh, my mom has hit her mid-80s. There, there are some aspects of her health that uh, are not good. Her body's getting tired. It's wearing out. And so here's one of the things that I have to weigh. And I know, again, I know I'm not the only one who has to consider this sort of thing. But one of the things that I'm trying to to weigh as far as, well, what do we do? Do we do the responsible thing and we stay away and, you know, only talk to her on the telephone or whatever? She's not going to do Zoom. She's not that technologically, you know, uh, capable. I'm looking at this and I'm going, I don't know what the odds are of her not being around this time next year. But given her age and stage of life, I would say that those odds are significantly higher than they were last year at this time. And so with that calculation in mind and understanding, yeah, there's risk. There's risk. If we go and visit her, there's a possibility one of us or maybe more of us might have COVID or be carrying it and be asymptomatic. But we're going to go see her. And we're going to enjoy a Thanksgiving meal with her and we're going to celebrate with her and we're going to enjoy her company. And if by some chance she gets ill, that is a risk that all of us have decided is worth it. Now, look, I'm willing to take my lumps. If you want to call me up and tell me what an irresponsible, selfish SOB I am for (laughs) for thinking this way, well, feel free. 801-331-8113. But the bottom line is, look, part of my calculation is that there is no guarantee that she is going to be here this time next year. 
Again, it's not that I think she's imminently in danger of dying, but uh, I, I recognize we all live on borrowed time. And my mom is no different. And she's at the age and stage of life where you can't take for granted. Well, of course, there will always be next Thanksgiving or there will always be next Christmas because you don't know that. And frankly, it's true for all of us, for any of us. I could have a massive heart attack and drop dead. And, you know, it's it's within the realm of possibility. So rather than living our lives like the sole purpose we were placed on this earth was to avoid catching a virus, which 99% of the people who catch it will survive. We're going to accept that risk. And I understand it's, you know, not everybody is willing to do that. Some people are like, oh, I can't believe you would do it. It's hard for my mom. She spends a lot of her time watching the news, glued to the news and watching the latest COVID statistics. And, oh, look, it's everywhere. And it's, oh, it's so terrible. And I'm sorry. I, I, a little over a year ago, I, I interviewed with, with a major uh, radio station in, in Salt Lake City. And uh, one of the things that one of the interviewers says is, uh, as I've, I've, I've looked at some of your material, listened to some of your shows, it's clear that you have kind of a beef with heritage media. And at the time, I was like, oh, I didn't think it was that much. But you know what? I do. <laughs> I absolutely do. Because right now, it appears to me that most of this heritage media feeds fear to its audience. Fear, anger, and, and hatred. And they do it for a very good reason. It brings people in. They click or they watch or they, you know, stay glued to it. They become dependent on it. But it strikes me as especially irresponsible. And, and, and it has sickened me to sit back and watch how COVID has been covered. And there are some media outlets that are worse about this than others. But it seems like every story that comes up. Look, here's another story. And, and, and it's terrible. It's worse than you ever thought. Oh, and look, here's a mother of a 19-month-old child fighting for her life because COVID. Look, it's a tragedy. And it's, it's a tragedy in the same sense when a 19-month-old child is fighting for their life with leukemia. Or has an accidental drowning and, and you know, is fighting for their life after being pulled out of the, the hot tub and, and revived. But I think it's super irresponsible how many of these media outlets go about reporting this in a way that, that to my eye and to my ear, is calculated to keep us in fear. And sadly, when you have nothing to do but kind of, you know, keep to yourself all day, every day, as so many elderly people do, it's tempting to sit there and, and, and feed on that. I think I mentioned this in the other hour of my show, and that is uh, there, there are people who, <clears throat> when they get up in the morning, the first thing they do <clears throat> is they turn on CNN or maybe they turn on Fox News and there they are told, here is what you need to be thinking about today. This is what you should be outraged about. This is what, uh, you know, is the most important thing of the day. And they go and they work their jobs thinking about it, talking about it at the water cooler with their coworkers and what have you. And they come home and they flip it back on again and they are right back to it, being told, here's what you should think. Here's what you should be feeling about this. That's largely the role that the news media has taken on. And if this sounds like a big blanket accusation, I guess it kind of is. 
but I'm simply commenting on what I have been able to observe. And yes, I have been paying very close attention for at least the last 25 years, maybe a little bit longer. It's not a matter of we are here to present the facts as objectively as possible and keeping as much narrative out of it as possible. In other words, keeping as many labels or judgments out of the reporting, but to give you the facts so that you can make up your mind what it all means. That's the ideal. Every every one of my friends who has been through journalism school and, you know, learned to be a journalist and claims the title journalist, that's that's what they aspire to. That's not the way much of our mass media works today. Most of them are there to tell us what to think, how to feel. They're narrative managers. And you can see this not just on the reporting of COVID. You see it in in the reporting on questioning the election results. Look, I, I don't carry water for Donald Trump. I'll confess I voted for him this time around. But as I mentioned before, I, the primary reason I voted for him was because the people who were most strongly opposing him were so reprehensible in my mind that I could not put any support their way. In fact, I would actively vote against them rather than, than give them a, a default you know, vote of, of uh, no, go ahead, do what you're going to do. They're just that nasty. They're just that unhinged. Now, we're going to talk more about this actually coming up in the next segment. But for the mainstream media, and this includes Fox News, Tucker Carlson was piling on last night. Why is the president's attorney, why is you know, she not bringing forth this evidence? When we ask her for evidence, she should give it to us. I just think that uh, the corporate control of so much of the media spills down into those who want to keep their job, those who want to keep their platform. They have to toe a certain line. And while I think it's, it's a sad thing with how many people in the process may be only partially informed or perhaps misdirected or maybe even outright misinformed, I also think that there is a golden opportunity right now for alternative sources of information, hint, hint, such as the one you're listening to right now, to keep providing information that you can consider and then make up your own mind about Because if I haven't made it clear, you don't have to believe a thing I say. I hope it makes sense. I hope you'll consider it. But ultimately, that decision is on your shoulders because you need to own your own worldview. We'll be back in just a moment. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. 801-331-8113. So, yeah, I was was mentioning that uh, I think it's okay for people to be questioning the results of the election. Now, I know there are those, and this, it it surprises me how many people who... um, ostensibly on the side of free markets and, uh, you know, personal liberty and private property and so forth, who um, nonetheless can't stand Trump and think this is just an exercise in his ego. You know, he can't get over the fact that he lost and, and maybe he lost. Look, I honestly don't know. But I do know that there is enough of a question. There's enough smoke that I think an inquiry as to whether or not a fire 
was started is worthwhile. The fact that the mainstream media has been so adamant about, well, we not only have called this, but it is decided and nobody should be questioning it. It's irresponsible. It's destructive. Politicians jumping on board. Oh, for crying out loud, Mitt Romney. Yes, that Mitt Romney. Well, there is no wide, there's no evidence of widespread voter fraud. Yeah, let's uh, let's explore that a little bit there, Senator Romney. Um, you know, there's no evidence of widespread infidelity on uh, your wife's part. But hey, you know, how much would there need to be? How widespread would that have to be before you started saying, hey, we've got a serious breach of trust here? And I'm sorry to make that so personal, but look, it's it's the same kind of thing. If you cannot trust the integrity of the voting system, not just at a local level, but but generally, if, if, if there is a way that it can be gamed to where those who are in power or those who wish to sway the vote have the ability to do so, regardless of what the actual voters have said, I think that's worth investigating. And I think there is ample... <sighs> incongruities to make an investigation worthwhile. Now, maybe it'll be investigated and it can be explained. But I think that uh, we owe it to ourselves to, to hold off on, you know, pronouncing this is over and done with and everything else is just making you look like a clown. I get that you feel that way, but it still doesn't change the fact that there there are some serious inconsistencies and whether whether it's about Trump or whether it was about another candidate. At least from where I from where I see this, if the system can be gamed to that extent, then the citizenry has just lost a a crucial lever of control over government. They've lost a crucial part of the accountability that those who are elected to represent us have to be subject to. So if a soapbox isn't working, if the ballot box isn't working, that leaves us another box. And that's the cartridge box. And frankly, I, I can't help but wonder, are we being steered in that direction deliberately? Are we being placed into that position where, you know, yep, you know, this is what it's going to come down to. Let me give you some evidence that, uh, that leads me to believe that that might be the goal for some people. I'm looking at those who have proclaimed themselves the winners, right? It hasn't been officially, you know, ratified or certified. The Electoral College hasn't voted. But by gosh, the media and the Biden transition team, they're eagerly, you know, celebrating. Well, this is how it's going to be. We're going to be waking up from this Twilight Zone nightmare soon. Let's look at the other side of that coin, though. Because there is a perception on the part of some of them, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez being one of them, that once we have our hands on power, what we need to do is punish those who weren't with us, those who did not express full-throated support for what we were trying to do and what we are going to do to them. Reverend Ben Johnson, in an article on the Foundation for Economic Education, asks the question, should a qualified employee's political views determine whether he gets or keeps a job? For a growing number of Americans, he says they already do. And in fact, I shared an article that he wrote for the for American Greatness uh, just a couple of days ago about the Pennsylvania police chief forced to retire by his progressive mayor after 26 years on the job. 
Wow, what did this chief do that got him shown the door? Well, actually, the chief's wife posted a Facebook message supporting President Trump. Lancaster Police Chief Jared Burkheiser may be the latest victim of cancel culture, says Reverend Ben Johnson, but he won't be the last. Now, interestingly enough, that article was written before the 2020 election. Since then, the female African-American chief police chief of Portsmouth, Virginia, lost her job. The town's progressive leadership fired Angela Green after she pressed charges against rioters who decapitated and pulled down a Confederate statue, striking a middle-aged black man in the head. The injury left the man temporarily comatose, caused him to flatline twice as his brain swelled dangerously and required months of therapy to teach him to walk and talk again. City officials fired Green on Monday morning, a little more than two months after placing her on paid leave. Now, she plans to sue. And Green will have company in the unemployment line, not merely because of another round of proposed COVID-19 lockdowns or impending minimum wage hikes. A number of political figures have, in effect, declared a Bush doctrine against the Trump administration. They will make no distinction between the 45th president and those who, quote, enable him. For instance, a former Clinton administration Treasury Secretary uh, Robert Reich proposed a Truth and Reconciliation Commission to discover the names of anyone who helped enable the Trump administration. Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez tweeted support of the Trump Accountability Project, which is an effort to blacklist what she calls Trump sycophants to stifle their employment prospects. After the blacklist backlash, the Accountability Project announced last Thursday that this project will no longer be active. Well, thank goodness. Former Obama campaign spokesman Hari Sevugan said employers considering them should know there are consequences for hiring anyone who helped Trump attack American values threatening not only Republicans, but those who hire Republicans. Now, Reverend Ben Johnson says, depending on how broadly one wants to define helped, that description could encompass 73 million Americans. It could go well beyond Trump administration alumni to include anyone insufficiently supporting of the, supportive of the Great Awakening. And maybe the whole point is to instill the maximum level of fear in the greatest number of political apostates. And he says this is alarming. Americans of all political backgrounds should seek to reverse this lamentable trend for several reasons. Now, here he spells out how employment discrimination harms society, saying first, threatening to lock someone out of polite society over run of the mill political differences normalizes discrimination. Isn't it interesting, too, that it's the tolerant, the woke that are heading this effort up? That's that's my annotation. Ben Johnson says, while some find it more acceptable to discriminate against people based on their beliefs rather than immutable factors like ethnicity, sex, or gender identity, he says legitimizing employment bias against any group opens the possibility of bias against every group. Worse, researchers have found that Americans already indulge political animosity to a degree that exceeds discrimination based on race. Second, he says... Employment bias denies people the opportunity to share their God-given gifts and talents with others. It deprives their families of an adequate livelihood entirely out of spite. But discrimination doesn't simply hurt those who are discriminated against. It also violates the bigot's self-interest. Viewpoint discrimination in the workplace denies a firm the most productive talent on the basis of often irrational biases. That lowers the office's efficiency, productivity, and ingenuity. 
And this is borne out by a couple of researchers, Shanto Iyengar and Sean Westwood, who conducted an experiment that allowed participants to award scholarships to either the most qualified applicant or a student who shared the same political views. And when it came time for choosing, they wrote partisanship simply trumped academic excellence. Discriminating against the best and brightest leaves bigoted firms competing for second place. Now, there's more to this. We're going to come back to it in a few moments. But I don't know what the likelihood is of these, you know, truth and reconciliation commissions. You know what they really are. These are the people who will head up the struggle sessions where those of us who weren't on board with someone other than Trump are going to confess our sins and, you know, be abused for the entertainment of the party. (laughs) uh, I'm not interested in participating. Thank you. Not accepting new guilt. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. 801-331-8113 if you'd like to join the conversation. Sharing an article here from Reverend Ben Johnson, Would AOC Blacklist 73 Million Americans? I mean, this kind of stuff has already started. You've heard the story of the Pennsylvania police chief, you know, who sent packing because his wife posted a Facebook message supportive of Trump. I'm sure you heard about uh, one of the members of the I think it was one of the uh, American cycling team members who was uh, was kicked off the team because someone asked him on social media. So you sound like you're a Trumpster to which he said, yes, I am. Boom, there it was. Well, we can't have that kind of hateful, divisive, you know, rhetoric going forward as a representative of our team. I don't know. It just seems a little arbitrary, seems uh, seems a little heavy handed. And as we as you'll see, when we come back to this article here in just a moment, um, Reverend Ben Johnson talks about how politically prejudiced hiring, preventing people from having jobs if they don't if they don't have the political purity that uh, that someone thinks that they should harms businesses in a couple of different ways let's go to the phone caller welcome to the show it's just to uh, keep you in line right it's well yeah it's it's like it's like reverend johnson says this is to generate maximum fear in as many people as possible that's right it's just like the political correctness because if you question then there's you can't have accountability yep period i mean that's just the way it is if you question everything that's going on in your government the thing you we are the government we are the ones paying for it and i just don't understand why people can't grasp that anymore i maybe because it's just too big and too many people work for the government well there's definitely that there there's definitely a lot of people whose livelihoods depend on being part of that uh, taker class without a doubt yep without a doubt and you know, I'm still amazed at people complying with this whole, this whole Corona thing. It's a, it's such a farce. It's trying to, like, the people that are working it. It's so amazing to watch how their hands are tied if they catch the common cold. The common cold or the flu is Corona. You're going to get diagnosed positive if you have a cold, and your hands are tied. Instead of the three or four day off, you know, thing that you would normally do. Get yourself better. Start feeling better. Get back to, on your horse and ride. You're not allowed to do that anymore. 
You now have to stay quarantined, or if you follow the their guidelines. Yep. Guidelines. And you know, it's to keep you for 14 days. You have to be quarantined. You got to tell everybody else. You know, you've been possibly exposed. You know, this is ludicrous. I agree. I agree, We've and that's. That's why I won't. That's why I'm. I'm not willing to comply. Rob, listen. Thank you. I want to get. I've got another caller trying to get through here, and I want to get them on as well. There's an article I'm going to share with you if I have time. This is from Brandon Smith, published today on LewRockwell.com. The title: Now is the time for Americans to rebel against lockdowns, mask laws, and forced vaccinations. I understand if that sounds fantastical to you, and like, well, now just a minute, Brian. This, how do you know that's going to come? I have friends who work in healthcare who are seriously weighing whether or not they can continue to do their job because of what is being required of them. And I don't think it's inappropriate that at least one of them has said, you know what? I don't want to find myself being a, a camp guard for a COVID concentration camp. And, and he's only halfway metaphorically speaking. He sees what is coming. And it looks a lot like medical tyranny. And he's saying, I may have to walk away from what could be a very good living simply because my conscience will not permit me to take part in this. Now, other people's consciences may be a little more malleable. Maybe that retirement or maybe that that paycheck is more than they can resist. All I know is uh, if, if you want to be a person of character, you are finding yourself in a time where that character is being tested, and it's not going to be an easy test. Back to the phone. Caller, welcome to the show. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty much sick of this, uh, uh, more or less, society more than anything, you know, because they're so uh, complacent. And it's like, you know, they call them face diapers, but I, they're more of a manly depends or something, <laughs> because... The, uh, these people are, are just let, let around like uh, and uh, herded, herded their own death, you know. There's one more box that we need to think about. See, I was raised on a farm, and this, uh, this Thanksgiving thing was a big thing around the farm, and it was one of the most celebrated holidays, and my, my kids, you know, they all uh, love this time of year when everybody not only a family but it was more or less friends too but the other box is it's time to it's a bread box time to starve these people out and just not to contribute to uh, and everybody raise their own stuff and completely uh, get away from these government and, and just starve them out because they're they're prepared to take over the farms. Oh yeah, I'll guarantee you that. Yeah, and and they've already got executive orders in where they don't already take over the farms. They'll take over property and everything. Declare an emergency. So I I think everybody could do it if they just uh, thought small and worried about uh, you know just uh, getting on basically day day by day. And uh, just preparing for the future, not, not like uh, storing food is by by uh, 
prepare, uh, you know, preparing to make your gardens and that, and that back like in the old days when they didn't have refrigeration and that. There's plenty of stuff that'll tide you over through the winter. Uh, and uh, just get back to basics again and, and uh, let this, uh, their own uh, mass, mask hysteria just fizzle its way out by just not participating anymore into their chaos. Well said. I agree. And this this goes back to something I was was hopefully advancing on on this program the other day. I think you said it better than I did, but that is make yourself an unplayable piece on their chessboard. And the way to do that is you make yourself, you know, someone who can't be leveraged. Well, you have to eat sometime. Yeah, we got that covered. Thanks. (laughs) What? You're not going to come crawling to us, begging for us to come and help you and provide for you? I want to go back here for a minute to uh, Reverend Ben Johnson's article. Something he points out here is if if those who want to punish those who would not stand with them succeed in in doing this uh, politically prejudiced hiring, he points out that there's another way that it harms businesses. Uh, One source summarized late economist Gary S. Becker's groundbreaking work on the economics of discrimination this way, saying, suppose an employer doesn't want to employ members of a particular group, even though these workers are as productive as any others. If the firm has to pay all workers the same wage, it will not employ members of the disadvantaged group. However, if it is possible to pay these workers less than those from other groups, the firm then faces a trade-off. It can employ members of the disadvantaged group at lower wages and thus increase its profitability, or it can discriminate and employ only workers from the high-wage group, even though this will mean lower profits. So discrimination in the latter case therefore imposes a cost on the firm. And finally, uh, Reverend Ben Johnson says, if the neo-McCarthyites really believe that President Trump and his supporters are revolutionaries, the last thing they should want is for this group to find itself unemployable, aggrieved, and awash in free time. If they honestly think that job losses make people cling to guns or religion or antipathy toward people who aren't like them, he says it would behoove them to see their political enemies busy themselves punching time clocks, creating goods and services, and entangling themselves in the joys of family life. One can only speculate how better employment prospects might have thwarted previous revolutions. I like this, too, as he wrote in his piece in American Greatness about Jared Burkheiser. He says we must stand up for Jared Burkheiser. We must demand our right to offend and be offended. We must insist on being judged on the content of our character, not the color of our skin. He says among these rights is the right to be judged on our performance, not our political orthodoxy. Well said. And I would echo something that he's warning about here, and that is, look, uh, for, for those who are so politically motivated that they feel like it is not only their uh, prerogative, but it is their duty to punish those who would not stand with them. And by the way, you'll see some of this on the political right as well. You're creating a very dangerous situation. Why? Because when you put someone in a corner where you take everything away from them to the point where they feel like, well, really, I have nothing to lose at this point. One of two things is going to happen. As Solzhenitsyn said, when you take everything a man has away from him, he's no longer under your control. He's free. Secondly, a man who has nothing to lose, or at least believes he has nothing to lose, is the most dangerous man you will ever face. Think carefully before backing people into that particular corner. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. I have a couple of articles posted in the show notes. I'm not going to go into great detail because they are they're fairly technical. But I think they're worth your time. That is, if you have any interest or use of money. I know not everybody needs it, but uh, for those who do. Um, I don't know if you've ever asked yourself this, but uh, what would a free market in money look like? Believe it or not, that is one of those freedoms that we really take for granted. And it's one that we really haven't enjoyed much since about 1913 with the passage of the Federal Reserve Act. Anyway, Thorsten Pollitt or polite, has a a very interesting take on how we could make fiat currency a thing of the past once again. And I have a link to his article in today's show notes, which you can access at thebrianhydeshow.com. And in a related topic, those who are looking into cryptocurrency, I've been watching uh, my friend Connor Boyack post some very interesting updates about Bitcoin. And I I know uh, for some people, it's like, okay, this imaginary money. But uh, have you seen the value of Bitcoin? I mean, the the growth it's experiencing right now is uh, meteoric, to put it mildly. And there's a terrific article from Ethan Yang from the American Institute for Economic Research that explains what's happening and why both of them are fairly technical articles they include charts and graphs so again i'm going to encourage you go check them out in the show notes but uh, if you want to study some some pretty interesting stuff on money what it is what it was what it could be there's some great uh, food for thought available right there i want to come back to this article from brandon smith about when is the right time to rebel against those who would take your remaining freedoms Brandon Smith says now is the time for Americans to rebel against lockdowns, mask laws, and forced vaccination. Now, if your first thought is, why is he calling people to violence? I think you need to check your own heart. There's no implication of violence, but uh, that, that call to resist and to rebel against it can be done peacefully. But it needs to be done, and it needs to be done sooner than later if we're to have any effect. He says, with the presidential election highly contested and the mainstream media hyping the rising infection infection numbers, the public is now facing important questions regarding the future of the pandemic response. Some states have decided to unilaterally introduce executive orders to restrict citizen movements, business openings, and public activities. Anthony Fauci's on the news constantly calling for families to cancel Thanksgiving and Christmas and just telling Americans to just do what we are told. The media is generally trying to drum up fear in the minds of the populace and paint images of plague and death everywhere. And as Brandon Smith points out, if Biden actually does end up in the White House, a federalized and national high-level lockdown is on the table starting in January. Now, back in April of this year, Brandon published an article titled Waves of Mutilation, Medical Tyranny and the Cashless Society which outlined a social engineering model put forward by globalists at MIT and the Imperial College of London, which he called wave theory. This is how the model works. Governments must use the pandemic as a rationale for waves of restrictive lockdowns, followed by controlled reopenings of the economy and of normal human activity. Globalists claim that this will slow the spread of coronavirus and save lives. However, they openly admit these cycles of closures and openings have other uses. 
Over time, the citizenry becomes acclimated to governmental intrusion in their everyday lives. They get used to the idea of bureaucracy telling them what they are not allowed to do when it comes to the simplest activities. The system thus bottlenecks all human interactions to the point where we're constantly asking for permission. We become slaves to the COVID response. As globalist Gideon Litchfield from MIT stated in his article, We're Not Going Back to Normal, quote, Ultimately, however, I predict that we'll restore the ability to socialize safely by developing more sophisticated ways to identify who is a disease risk and who isn't, and discriminating legally against those who are. One can imagine a world where, in which to get on a flight, perhaps you'll have to be signed up to a service that tracks your movements via your phone. The airline wouldn't be able to see where you'd gone, but it would get an alert if you'd been close to known infected people or disease hotspots. There'd be similar requirements at the entrance to large venues, government buildings, or public transport hubs. There would be a temperature scanner everywhere, and your workplace might demand that you wear a monitor that tracks your temperature or other vital signs. Where nightclubs ask for proof of age, in the future... They might ask for your proof of immunity, an identity card, or some kind of digital verification via your phone showing you've already recovered from or been vaccinated against the latest virus strains, end quote. Now, Brandon Smith says, note that Litchfield suggested that in order to participate in the normal economy, you might need to show verification that you have been vaccinated against the latest virus strains. In other words, the elites expect there to be many more viral events or mutations after COVID-19 has run its course. And the restrictions and controls we see today are meant to continue, possibly forever. So the reality is that the wave model is not a very practical plan for stopping viral spread, but it's a perfect method for conditioning people to submit to a high level of control over their personal lives that they never would have accepted otherwise. The COVID response has also been heralded by elites at the World Economic Forum as the perfect opportunity to initiate what they're calling the Great Reset. The Reset is a plan to deconstruct what's left of the free market capitalist system, introduce carbon controls in the name of global warming fraud, institute a global cashless monetary system, and finally, move humanity into what they call a shared economy in which the average person is no longer allowed to own private property of any kind, and is completely dependent on the system for their basic necessities. Of course, such a complex system of solutions, by which they mean dominance, over every individual, would need to be managed in a highly centralized way, meaning global governance by the elitist establishment would be the end result. And of course, naturally, the globalists would reluctantly take the reins of power for the greater good. So Brandon Smith says this is the bigger picture, the underlying threat at the core of the lockdowns and COVID laws. That said, he says there are numerous arguments based on logic and evidence as to why there is no reason for people to submit to such restrictions. And he goes through a pretty simple list here, and I'm just going to touch on the high points here. Coronavirus kills less than 1% of the people it infects. Lockdowns destroy the economy. State governors have no authority to take away your civil liberties. And by the way, neither does the president. Mask laws are unscientific. COVID vaccination is unnecessary and potentially dangerous. And what he comes back to is that rebellion is needed to put a stop to the fear machine. Now listen to how he outlines this. He says, in closing, there are endless reasons why we must end the pandemic lockdown agenda once and for all. 
Most importantly, the lockdowns, mask orders, and vaccine plans are a stepping stone to something much worse. Medical tyranny and centralization on an unprecedented scale. And he just comes right out and says, I will not personally follow such rules because they are not scientifically or morally sound. They are nonsense designed to frighten the public into complacency and consent. He says a rebellion against such measures would be very easy to win. All we have to do is refuse to follow their mandates. What are they going to do? Lock up millions of people? Shoot us? That would sort of defeat the supposed purpose of the very measures they demand we follow. But he says, and if it comes to violence, so be it. I have no problem fighting to defend my freedoms and the freedoms of future generations. He says, perhaps it's time for conservatives and moderates that stand against the lockdowns to organize for this possible future. Now, I understand those are strong words. Can you deny the truth of what he's saying, though? I understand there are a lot of people who are frightened to the point where they just don't care. Anything to make them feel safe. They will roll over and show their belly because that's the only way that they feel that they can be safe. And they've been taught to see the state as some kind of a hybrid God slash parent that will tell them what truth is and provide for all of their needs and, and, and tell them what to do and when. Can I just suggest you were not born to live under that kind of subjugation. I don't think such a thing would be pleasing to your creator. I think it certainly is contrary to the intent of the framers of our system of government. And once you understand what your natural rights are, as well as the natural rights of everybody else, you have a duty to stand in defense of those things. I don't think there are a lot of things in this world that, uh, that, that God would, would tell us you need to defend this even to the point of bloodshed. I do believe that freedom is one of those things. And I don't say that flippantly or say it like, yeah, you know, violence is cool. That's a, that's a good thing. I'm just saying that throughout the ages, people who have enjoyed the blessings of liberty, almost without exception, have enjoyed them because at some point, someone was willing to literally put their life on the line to secure those blessings of liberty. It's been an awful long time since any generations had to do heavy lifting, but guess what, folks? I think our turn is coming. And the bigger question is, are you and I up to the job ahead of us? Not just physically, but character-wise, spiritually, emotionally. A little something to ponder. This is The Brian Hyde Show.